title of the message is simply Stand Firm in the Faith. I felt like bringing this message, it came from just a, a, a sense that I had that reminded me of a particular portion of Scripture in the Gospels where Jesus is talking to the apostle called Peter, previously known as Simon. And it's at the time where Jesus has gone through the crucifixion. He is now risen alive. He is presenting himself to his followers, risen and alive. And now he's having an exchange with Simon Peter. And the exchange is important because just prior through the crucifixion of Christ, Simon Peter, who was known to be one of the most zealous of Jesus' followers, actually denies even knowing Jesus. Denies being associated to Jesus. And denies Jesus three times. So now Jesus has risen again, fulfilled his earthly purpose. And what I love is that Jesus always looks to reconcile. The message of Christ is one of reconciliation. One where there has been separation or segregation, now there is this invitation by God for reconciliation, for closeness with Him. And so Jesus is now having a moment where Peter has been disconnected through denying Christ, and Jesus is actually inviting reconciliation. And so He's having this exchange with Peter, and He's asking Peter a question which goes along the lines of, Peter, do you love me? And Peter replies, yes, I I love you. And so then Jesus, to that response, says, feed my sheep. And it was that line that I just felt like stood out to me and, and what I was called attention to, feed my sheep. So I started asking myself the question, what does that actually mean? What, what, when, when Peter is commissioned by Jesus to feed my sheep, which is an analogy or a metaphor, the people of God are known as sheep, him known as the good shepherd. And so it's drawing on this viewpoint of a shepherd and sheep. And so Christ is saying to Peter, feed my sheep, suggesting to us that the sheep of God are in need of feeding. There is this spiritual requirement for you and I to continue to be sustained by the nourishment of God's word, which is the bread of life, which in essence is Jesus. Everything of what uh, the gospels and and the word of God, uh, everything points to Christ. Everything points to Jesus, that he is the bread of life. He is the sustenance of life. And so Peter, to feed the sheep, speaks of us needing to be fed and that his word is what brings us sustenance. So now there is this gap between that exchange between Simon, Peter, and Jesus, which would have been around about AD 33, not necessarily exact with the dates, but then you go about 30 years on to about AD 60 is when Peter writes the letters, which we know as 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And here is a brief recap as to what we've touched on the last couple of weeks. In essence, Peter speaks about the trials of life. And the trials of life bringing suffering, bringing pain, bringing 
testing tough times. He, he is writing to the church and he is speaking of the tough times that are being faced or to be faced. At that particular time, the people of God, the church that Peter is writing to, were experiencing very significant, atrocious, harsh persecution from the Roman Empire that was governing where they were. And so they are experiencing literal times of persecution and uh, pain, but it is applicable to us that Christ himself tells us that in this life you will have troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I have made available to you a grace that strengthens us to navigate the trials that we face. And what we looked at and what Peter speaks about is that perspective is so vital in navigating tough times. Perspective is how we see things, not what we see. Because we can all see the same thing in a room with this amount of people, we can see that same thing in a hundred different ways. And it's how we see something, our perspective, which actually affects the way that we interact with that thing. And so when it comes to trials and pain and suffering, how we choose to see it will actually enable us to navigate it as best as we can. And what we looked at is that ultimately, as discomforting pain and trials can be, good can come from it particularly for those of us who would have faith and who would walk it, the pain and suffering, the trial and challenge, with God. Not independently, not in our own strength, not in trying to have control over it, but simply to walk it with Him. Psalm 23, that psalm that we looked at just after worship, speaks of how God walks with us through the valleys. And so there will be valleys and there will be dark times, but we are to walk with him. And it also speaks about how our lives, throughout the, the narrative of, of the letters of Peter, it speaks about how our lives can play an instrumental role in positively impacting others and positively shaping society. Please never underestimate the positive impact that your life has and can have. And it might not be grand in comparison to somebody else, but in relation to you and who you are and the part that God has ordained for you, understand that every single part is important. And good only comes in society when there are active citizens, when there are people like you and I who are truly engaged in our communities. And I would hope that you and I would be aware of and appreciate the significance of our positive contribution. That despite challenge that we would see, despite strife that we would experience, we would be the ones that say we will take responsibility for and carry a sense of duty for our community. And that it would be worked out in every small way that we can. 
So we're going to go to 1 Peter 3, but I just wanted to highlight this. I appreciate more than anybody in the room my fallibility in communicating the truths of God. I am aware that whatever I say to you, as much diligence that I give it, as much study that I give it, as much trust that I have that it is by God and with His Spirit that I communicate to you, you have a Bible that is available to you. That it is God's desire that you are fed by Him through personal devotion. That this getting together is important. We should never underestimate its importance. This getting together is about celebrating the goodness of God. It is about an impartation. It's about an experience. It's about community. But it should all be anchored by your personal devotion with Jesus. And this is Peter now speaking to all of us. Finally, all of you, (laughs) be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That first line in verse 8 there are five key aspects that Peter is encouraging the people of God to be. Not just do. We live in a mentality, particularly in Western society, that is so oriented towards what we do. Our activity, our accomplishments, and what I love about Christ and the teachings of Christianity is that it's not centered on what we do. What we do is important. There's no doubt about it. But it is ultimately centered on who we are and who we are becoming. In other words, who we be as people. Who we be as believers. And um, that's something that we bring attention to at the beginning of our year as a church I've started the last two years about speaking about the future of who we are, centered around who we are becoming. You know, we want to become a church that is a wellspring of life. We want to become a church uh, that carries the good news. We want to become a church that is a house of salvation. That's what we started the year with. And so Peter, again, is speaking to Christ's followers, and he's encouraging us to be five things. To be, uh, and Eugene Peterson, you can bring that up, uh, Adrian. Eugene Peterson, the message says it like this. Be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, and be humble. Be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, and be humble. The first one, when you look at it, in both translations, it's, it says be agreeable, and the other one is, is be like-minded. There is, a, there is a theme, particularly through the New Testament. 
And it's always an encouragement from the author to congregations or to the church, which emphasizes the importance of unity. It emphasizes for us to be like-minded. It emphasizes for us to be agreeable. It emphasizes for us to be one in spirit, speaking of unity amongst believers. And unity is such a powerful thing within the people of God. Psalm 133, it actually says it like this. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of robe. There's a lot of picture in there, okay? It's like metaphor. It's a lot of, which we won't have time to go into right now. But then it goes on to say this, for there, speaking of unity, for there the Lord bestows his blessing. There is blessing when there is unity. Think about a marriage. There is no doubt about it. When there is unity in marriage, there is a flow, there is a, a connectivity, and there is a blessing that is bestowed upon it. And it's the same within the church, same within Christendom, same within the people of God, where God, via Peter, Peter feeding the sheep, we being the sheep, the people of God, he is imploring us that there would be like-mindedness, that there would be an agreeability, and that there would be a unity amongst us. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything. Sounds like a bit of a contradiction, right? Be agreeable, but you don't have to agree on everything. That be agreeable speaks more about a spirit that exists, an intent of the heart, a desire that we would find ourselves being on the same page, particularly on big, broad things. There is good that comes out of being in disagreement. If you look at it from an organizational performance perspective, uh, there's a lot of analogies drawn on how it's actually a healthy indication if agreement, disagreement can take place, as long as it ultimately lands on people being agreeable. Because now it means that we're in this together, heading towards the same thing. But I like the word unity more than just being agreeable, because it does. It speaks of us being unified and anchored. Now the question is, is what are we unified and anchored on? Or to whom? I am mindful that when I say something like what I'm about to say is that I feel like I have positioned myself as being the representative of the church, which is a highly arrogant thing to presume. So I, I, I'm not trying to presume on having any authority to speak into the grand scheme of what the church is. But if I could just touch on where I believe we often err on the wrong side of things when speaking about unity in the church, particularly in what we would be known as, as independent uh, churches, more contemporary expressions of church, is that we often build unity towards the brand. Like we build unity towards our mission statements, our values, our core cultures. We build uh, unity towards our brand identity. That was never the intention of God. The intention of God is that we, the believers, 
regardless of whether we find ourselves right now within co-church or any other church, that we, the believers, would be unified to Jesus. He is the one that brings unification. He is the one that we look to for guidance, that we look to for the roadmap for there to be an agreeability about us, for there to be a like-minded about us. And I like that word like-minded because it speaks to our belief systems. It speaks to a sense where it's like uh, we are aligned to the core beliefs of who Jesus is, what Jesus makes available for us, and who we are now in Christ. And, And I don't want us to build towards like the brand of our church. But may we be a church that builds towards Jesus and not builds towards our brand. I would say that I have made that mistake previously. I would say that I have made that mistake currently and will potentially make that mistake in the future. That we would allow ego, uh, that we would also allow what I believe has crept into a more contemporary style of church that is so centered around success and surface success that we spend so much time trying to build this brand identity because we're driven to have a localized success numerically. When at the end of the day, Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the head Christ is the one that brings sustenance. And so may there be unity around Christ. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. Uniformity speaks of like everything looking the same, sounding the same, being the same. And that would suck, right? Like... If we all looked the same and dressed the same and spoke the same, and um, and I I do laugh sometimes because I've been in faith environments where you can tell like so much has been centered around the brand that everyone fits brand identity and how they look and how they speak, but unity doesn't mean uniformity. Um, Within unity, like unity is the overarching desire. Within unity, there is strength that comes from diversity. Diversity of of thought, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of uh, race, diversity of socioeconomic standing. Diversity has within it strength. If Unity is the desire. Now, again, let's talk about the elephant that is in the room. But can we just say this? We live in a country where if you look around, I wouldn't say we're hitting the mark with diversity just yet. And I'm aware of that. It's not that I'm not aware of it, okay? I'm very well aware of it. And, and right from the outset of Tam and I desiring to shape a church or be a part of shaping a church, it was always with the desire for there to be diversity. Diversity in race, diversity in age. Really, when it's all said and done, we, we have some gaps. 
in that diversity desire. We've got a lot of young children. We've got a lot of kind of my age and younger. I feel like I'm at the top end of my age. Uh, I'm 43, 44 in December, 13th of December. Yeah. Just give you enough time to save. Uh, you know, kind of Tam and I's age and younger, um, we don't have a lot of teenagers. And we certainly don't have a lot of young adults. But that's the reality, right? Like, so I just want you to know, we categorically have a desire to be a diverse church. Like I said, diverse across every aspect. Because I feel like that's kingdom. God's desire is for all people. Actually, when you look at the book of Acts, when there was the birthing of what the New Testament church is, thousands of people come into Christ, you actually look at it, and I think if you count them, there are 11 different ethnicities represented just in Jerusalem. And so God calls everybody. All are called. I know that we can't force that. I know that. Because it, it becomes superficial, it becomes insincere, it becomes gimmicky, and, and man, I don't want to be a part of that. But what I do know is that we have to be intentional. Yeah? We have to be intentional. And, and it starts with who is here right now. Because these are the only people we can be intentional with. And so I want to encourage you to be intentional about ensuring that you are playing a part in us being unified to Christ, but seeing diversity as a strength. And to be open and to be learning and to be sensitive. And because how awesome would it be that we could see kingdom represented in our church? The second one is this, is be sympathetic. So be unified, be agreeable, be of one mind, be like-minded. Second is be sympathetic. To have sympathy, if you look at it in, in the dictionary, the one that I found was just simply two words. It was fellow feeling. To have sympathy is, is fellow feeling. In other words, if somebody is feeling something, to have sympathy is to actually engage with what they are feeling and to feel it too. Feelings are things that we all have. Now, I've sat in a lot of teaching that has spoken against being led by feelings. And, and, and I agree with that philosophy. Because, you know, feelings are up and down, and we don't live by feelings, we live by faith. However, perhaps in some circles we've erred so far away from feelings that all we do is suppress them to the point where either we become cold robots or there is an explosion or an implosion, and it's unhealthy. And we recognize that all of us have feelings. Feelings that we go through, that we navigate, that, that exist in our life. And, and, and oftentimes, there's actually health in sitting with the feeling. And church should hopefully be an environment where you walk in and are empowered to leave feeling 
strengthened and refreshed, hope-filled. But that should never be at the expense of recognizing that there will be feelings of pain, of, of doubt, of uncertainty, of guilt, of shame, or like negative feelings. As hope-filled as we want to be, as positive as we want to be, we recognize that all of us deal with stuff and go through stuff. We want to be a people that are sympathetic, that we choose to engage and sit with people. The Bible says it like this in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Good things, celebration, happiness, standing alongside people in good times. Often, I feel like that is a greater indicator of character when you are able to celebrate with somebody in their good times. Oftentimes, we want to tear down and we want to accuse and we want to, uh, you know, like just tone things down a little bit. If somebody is rejoicing, let's rejoice. Like, let's celebrate with people. Honor them in their rejoicing, but at the same time, if somebody is mourning, we enter into that mourning. We enter into that pain. The third thing that Peter teaches and is feeding the sheep in is to be loving. So be agreeable or, or be like-minded, have unity, be sympathetic, have fellow feeling, be loving. In Romans 12, again in verse 9, speaking of love, it says, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. Who here has been to a wedding ceremony? It's not a trick question. You're not going to be judged. Okay? Most of us, right? All of us been to a wedding ceremony? Uh, small confession. The first wedding that I ever attended in its fullness was my own. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian world. And I, my non-Christian world were not getting married at the age that I got married. I got married when I was 24. Um, and so up until that point, I wasn't going to anybody's weddings. So at a wedding ceremony, I'm sure that if you've been to enough, there is a particular passage of scripture that would often get referred to about love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love scripture. It's the marriage scripture. Um, the powerful thing about 1 Corinthians 13 is that it's actually describing what love is. So Peter, in feeding the sheep, the people of God, he is saying, be of one mind, be unified, uh, be sympathetic, but be loving. In Romans 12, again, it's speaking to the church, love must be sincere. So what is love? And we can have so many depictions of what love is particularly if we are oriented towards media and film and television. You know, love gets displayed in so many different ways, but is it the right way? So if we're speaking about being loving, what does that actually look like? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 actually gives us one of the best descriptions of what love is. Um, and so you can remind yourself again of, of your time of wedding ceremony or picture that moment again, but this is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love 
never fails. That's what love is. Okay, but here's the thing about love. Uh, Looking at that description, and let's just say, speaking to the married couples, of which we discovered fairly recently, a lot of us are married in this church. Not many singles. Think about our marriage. If I had to say to you, okay, for this next week, what I want you to do is to be biblically loving in your marriage. Every single moment of every single day for the next week, just seven days. Who honestly thinks they could achieve that? Looking at that definition. If you do, you're lying. (laughs) So it's like, okay, so be loving. Love must be sincere. This is what love is. But how do we actually do that? Like, is it even possible? Well, here's the thing. Like love, we're actually, we're called to grow into it and grow into it constantly. But what we have to appreciate is that there is an even greater definition of what love is, greater than 1 Corinthians 13. It's found in 1 John chapter 4. And love is simply this. Love is God. God is love. If you go into 1 John chapter 4, it speaks about love, and it says actually the first love. And often what we do is when we go to love and we have this teaching and we have this instruction to be loving, we go straight away to how we, in our own strength, can be more loving. I need to be more patient. I I can't be as envious. I I, I need to kind of not hold wrongs against people. and, and, And we go so inward, but we're setting ourselves up for failure. What we need to do is to go to love. We need to go to God. And the first love is not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And actually in John chapter 13, where Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. He says it like this, love one another as I have loved you. So really what it is, when we talk about be more loving, what we need to do is to go to love, to be more loving. Fourth thing is that we're called to be compassionate. Compassion is different to sympathy because compassion enters into the feeling of somebody else, but then does something about it. Compassion is simply defined like this. It is the willingness to relieve the suffering of another. Matthew 25, we won't read it right now, but in essence, Jesus is using an analogy of a king speaking to people and And the king is saying to people, um, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. And, And the people are then saying to the king, when did we do this? And this is now Jesus speaking to people. Jesus is saying, you fed me, you clothed me, you embraced me when you did that for the least of these. The people who were in suffering, you did that for me and with me when you did that for somebody else. And Peter is imploring us to be compassionate, that we would actually do something about the suffering that we see, the suffering that is experienced. And again, oftentimes we think it has to be these huge, big, grand gestures. But I know to be true, it's most often more significant 
in the small, everyday, consistent things. That when we experience suffering in some form through whatever capacity we might have, which is all relative, that we would do something to bring about peace and comfort in somebody's suffering. And so Peter is encouraging us to do that. And finally, be humble. Be agreeable, be of one mind, have unity, be loving, be uh, sympathetic, be compassionate, be humble. I've, I've spoken about this before. Nicky Gumbel uh, uses this quote, Nicky Gumbel, who's more well-known because of what Alpha represents and Holy Trinity Brompton in the United Kingdom. He's used this quote, but I believe it actually comes from a C.S. Lewis quote, which essentially speaks about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Oftentimes we think that to be humble means that we have to be degrading towards ourselves, accusationary towards ourselves, like tear ourselves down. That's what it means to be humble. It's actually not. It's completely the opposite because true humility is taking the spotlight off of yourself and putting it on somebody else. Humility is the elevation of others above ourselves. Humility is the recognition that we don't have it all together, and that we need something greater than ourselves. And God teaches us, Christ teaches us through the book of James, that God gives us grace through humility. It says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. For me personally, humility is something that I so highly esteem in people. There's something beautiful about authentic humility. And remember, that's not about having a lack of confidence. Oftentimes, confidence is a recognition that God is with you. So it's, it's good to have confidence. The Bible in Hebrews actually says, don't throw your confidence away. Have confidence in Christ. Knowing who you are in Christ, it's a good thing. But, man, we've just become so self-absorbed, right? Like society at large. And, and I know this is such an older person thing to say, but like social media, all that's done is it's just put a megaphone on our self-centeredness, our self-absorption. And, and if we cannot recognize the stuff that is going on in the world right now coming from such a self-centered place, we're missing the point completely. Everybody is so easily offended. Everybody is so easily opinionated. Everybody is so... And it's like, hang on a second. When did we become so absorbed with ourselves? Well, the reality is, we always have been. <laughs> we always have been. And we all are, to a degree. And humility is just day by day, not thinking less of yourself, just thinking of yourself less. And having a focus more on Christ and His grace and His goodness and who we are in Him. But let me pray for us and for you. Father, we just take these words, take what is shared, take your word, and we would ask that you would settle and seal something in us. Holy Spirit, that whatever seed has been deposited, that you would be the one that brings it to fruition. That we would see you 
more active in our lives, not because you are dormant, but because now we are looking to you in all things. We are more aware of you, that we are more trusting of you, reliant of you. And Father, I want to pray right now for anybody in the room who perhaps has never truly connected to you by faith, or even at some point would have connected to you, but being honest right now in this moment, has disconnected and is living separate from you and your grace. I want to pray, Lord, for every person, that there would be people who would look to you. Instead of trying to do everything in our own strength, would be reliant upon your grace, your unearned, undeserved kindness and power for our salvation. And so I want to pray for people, for people to be saved, set free, forgiven, and given a brand new start. And as they would leave this place, Lord God, that they would continue to meet with you in such a real way. Let your blessing be upon us, Lord God. May we all grow in love and be more loving. In Jesus' name.